as he comes now. That's powerful. See that? All right. How are we all doing tonight? Good? Good to be with you all again. Let's, let's, let's move a little projector. I'm going to sit. I strained my knee Tuesday um, exercise, so I don't really want to stand on it for some sit here, if that's all right with you all. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to just talk to you a bit prophetically and, and turn it over, then I'll prophesy over some of you um, with me. Is that okay, Tom? You want me to prophesy some after I teach? All right. Okay. All right, let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, to be here among family. I'm asking uh, your blessing um, on this meeting. I thank you for Jim and, this, and the team here and all they've seen. Lord, I can remember coming here uh, decades ago as a young pastor, a young leader, um, and having my own life shaped here. Amen. I love coming here. Um, it's the one time a year I'm not like the oldest person where I am, and... Um, in our, in our larger every nation world, Tom and I, and we're, we work in about, I don't know, 80 countries, I guess. I'm, we're, we're older, believe it or not. I'm 61. I've been married 37 years. And on our international apostolic team, I am the oldest person. So anyway, I'm, one, I'm not the oldest here. I might even be one of the younger. Anyway, so I'm kind of feeling extra young tonight. Um, let me just talk to you candidly um, about where are we right now in the world. It's a perplexing time. And um, the Lord in his grace is faithful to speak to me about world events and things in our country. So I want to frame some things tonight um, that have been on my heart. If you just read the headlines, it's fairly perplexing, to say the least. Um, Paris gets a lot of news. Um, they're in the West. There's a lot of media there. If you were to just take a look at November around the world, the slaughter in November by terrorism from Nigeria to, um, to Israel, the West Bank, you name it, it's everywhere. And I believe it's Mali, there's been a big standoff. So where is God in all this? We, I was just in Berlin watching 1,000 refugees register every day from Syria. I've been on the Syrian border um, this year. I've looked into the eyes of a man radically saved out of one of the a terrorist organizations now leading a Christian ministry. Where is God in this? In December of 2009, and Tom knows this and has heard me say these things well since then, the Lord came to me five times, all around 4.30 in the morning. Um, I, I got a little tired of it finally, except for the fact every time I got up, he began to talk to me about the decade. Finally, on the third time, and I'm going to talk in a way I wouldn't normally talk on Sunday morning, the clock turned into 430. The Lord said, it's 430 years the children of Israel were in Egypt before the Exodus. And he said, you're coming into a decade of Exodus. And he said, expect me 10 things then. So he said, I'm going to shake political structures. I'm going to shake nations. He said, you're going to see millions of people look for freedom. And he said, I'm going to particularly shake the Islamic world. And those nations that have hated Israel and the church, I'm going to shake their government. And, of course, that was long before Arab Spring. He said, I'm going to shake that. 
And he said, yes, terrorism is going to continue. He said, but there is going to be a harvest among Muslims. That's un- it's going to be extraordinary. So now, now looking back at that, I, I understand what that exodus means. And it's what God is doing is interesting. And then in 2012, the Holy Spirit came to me specifically about Europe. And um, I'd been with Tom to Europe, and Tom was kind of the primary reason I've really gone to Europe, um, as well as some other churches we worked with there, both he and I. And it was in January 1st, 2012, the Lord came to me, and he said, Jim, he said, I want to show you what's going to happen in Europe. And the next thing I knew in a vision, the map of Europe opened up, and I saw this big old bear come out of hibernation and begin to sweep its paw over Europe. And he said, son, the Russian bear is going to rise up to reclaim its lost place in Europe. And so I saw this bear begin to reach out and take you. Tom's heard me say these things for years, and they were all in writing. But So the Lord said, but you're not to be afraid. I'll break the arm of the bear. And I saw the Lord snap the left arm. It was reaching with its right arm, and I don't want to go down that track. And he said, but son, I'm going to raise up Germany. He says, you watch what I do. He said, as America begins to pivot toward Asia, he says, I am going to raise up Germany as a counterbalance for Russia. That didn't make a lot of sense then. Um, it makes more sense now with the, all the power that um, Merkel has in um, uh, Europe. So I pondered this, and the next year as we were coming into our world conference, the Lord told me, he said, I'm going to plow Europe with two things. One is going to be the fear of Russia, and the other is going to be just the rise of Islamic immigration. And he said, son, he said, as Muslims continue to pour into Europe, they weren't so much pouring in those days, um, he said, it's going to force Europeans to rediscover their Christian roots and examine their faith. And, you know, and when the Lord spoke that to me, I was just, you know, you hear those things and you write them down and, I, I, sh- I happened to share that one with hundreds of our leaders at a world conference in 2013. And so I've been going, um, I've been going to Scotland and the UK for years, but I've been going to Berlin every year because the Lord told me I was going to, so I said, I'm going to sew into that. In fact, I was sitting in Nigeria when God said, go to Berlin, and my phone lit up in Nigeria saying, will you come to Berlin? So I felt it was kind of a divine confirmation. I confess, some of you will understand, I was checking sports scores in church. Now, I think the Lord understands that when your team is playing in a big, crucial game. But anyway, okay, so um, one of my worst times ever is I'm a Tar Heel fan. This year, we finally have a decent football team. Normally, we have a good basketball team. We're, 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 way, we're going into the big, uh, into the uh, basketball NCAA, um, you know, 64 and all, playing and playing. I was in Nigeria. I was supposed to preach that night, and we were one of the big qualifying games there were seven seconds left, and we were tied, and we had the ball, and they called my name to preach. We go, oh, it was a great sacrifice. But anyway, so, so I've been going to Berlin, and God's beginning to do astonishing things in Europe. And much to my surprise and amazement, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, when I landed in Berlin the day before, the Chancellor, Merkel, I might add, her father was a deeply committed Christian and pastor in East Germany. Even though he was part of the state church, loved God. In fact, I met one of the pastors he discipled in his home. And she stood up at a news conference, and people were questioning her about the rise of, you know, Muslims and the immigration. And she goes, are you afraid of Muslims coming? She said, no, I'm not. We have four million in the country. 
and they're free, she said, to study the Quran. She said, but the real issue, this is mind-boggling for Europe, is not, and I could pull the speech for you and read it. I had it translated. The real issue is not whether Muslims know the Quran, it's that do Germans know their Bible. And she says, I want to challenge Germans to read the Bible. I want to challenge Germans to go back to church. I want to challenge Germans to rediscover their spiritual roots. And it's a shame they don't know what Pentecost is. So some things are coming together very uniquely, um, whether it's in Scotland, whether it's in the UK, whether it's in Germany. God's retargeting Europe. He's retargeting it. And we find one of these divine moments where God is plowing Europe and we're going to see immense harvest there. When it comes to Islamic immigration, what God is doing among Muslims is unprecedented. I, I, I'm a, I, was, I was on the Syrian border again this year hearing testimonies of Muslims being saved. And now, he is, now Muslims are having their own exodus. And by the thousands and hundreds and hundreds of thousands, they're flooding into Europe. I heard one Muslim say, our own people wouldn't help as Christians will. I prophesied over a young Muslim man when I was in Berlin who had walked six months from Syria to Berlin, already saved and water baptized and in the church. We've come to a moment where the harvest in the Muslim world and the harvest in Europe are coming together. And one is going to feed the other. The foremost missionologists in the world have longed for this day and wondered if it would ever come. And I personally feel privileged to be alive right now. Privileged to be alive at a time when God is doing so many incredible things. Now, I want to talk for a moment about our country, if I may, and then I want to talk very particularly to you as a group. So look with me in your Bibles for a moment, 1 Kings 19. Um, I get asked about the country all the time, and honestly, I've never been more thrilled about what I believe God is getting ready to do in this church here in America. And I've, it's been a long time since I've been as concerned as I am right now about our country. It's interesting, I was thinking, I think it was, this is your, last year was the 40th anniversary of CBU. And maybe you can remember back with me the plight of our country. I can remember coming to a conference might have been 1979, 1980, I can't remember, Jim, but it looked like Teddy Kennedy was going to win the race, and you and the leaders there called us to two days a week of fasting for a year, and God turned that election and gave us Ronald Reagan. Seems like just yesterday when I was part of the 82nd Airborne Division as a young sergeant, I mean, all we would do is train for riot duty to, have to, to get ready to go up and protect Washington. And quite honestly, looking back at the, the tide of wickedness and darkness that was sweeping into our country, I was touched for God during the Jesus Movement in 1971, baptized in the Holy Spirit, 
came up under many of the same people you did. And now, once again, we find a descending darkness in our country. It's not been like this for 40 years, the level of darkness. What's, like, what's the answer? Where are we? So I'm going to talk about the country, then I'm going to talk about you. When you come into 1 Kings 19, 1 through 19, let me set the, the stage for you. We know from 1 Kings 16, 29 to 17, 1 that Israel had never been in such a period of darkness. Their king, Ahab, it said never in history had any king been as wicked as he. His wife, Jezebel, um, and under their rule, Baalism was becoming the religion of the day. Immorality wasn't just tolerated, it was considered an act of worship, where you could end up with a temple prostitute, male or female, depending on your choice, and your gender, and the baby that came from that union would be sacrificed in the fire. The relationship of the church was also changing, where at one point the church had always cooperated with the, with the king to build the nation, then it had kind of become the conscience. Now it was a time of confrontation. Uh, Elijah was considered a troubler, a danger. The church of that day was rapidly losing its place in society. What was God's answer to that? Well, God's answer then was a man named Elijah. You know the story. He rose up in Mount Carmel, and after he prophesied there would be a drought, it was an agricultural, an agricultural economy, which meant it was going to be economic chaos. For three and a half years, it didn't rain. You know the story. First, he was fed by ravens, then he was fed by a widow. And after three and a half years, he stood on Mount Carmel and told Israel, it's time to choose whether you'll serve Baal or God. Things had gotten so bad, and if you think it's dark in America, there were only 7,000 Israelites who had not bowed to Baal. That's how dark it had gotten. Remember, God told him later in 1 Kings 19, I have 7,000. 7,000. The lights were going out. And on Mount Carmel, thousands and thousands and thousands of his fellow citizens gathered. It was the moment he was born for. And God really showed up that day. You know the story. He said it very simply. Whichever God sends fire is the God. And all of Israel said, whichever God sends fire, we'll worship. There were 400 priests and prophets of Baal cavorting, cutting themselves, chanting incantations. At one point, when you look in the Hebrew, Elijah basically asks him and says, has your God gone to the bathroom? Is he a little worn down today? This massive confrontation. He looks up. He says, why don't you go ahead and wet this wood? Let's make it hard. Now, when he wet that wood, it wasn't just to show God's power. It was also to show his faith. He realized that was the most priceless commodity in the land. What he was saying is, get ready to see what's going to happen. More water's coming. You know the story. Fire falls. Everyone's screaming, God's the Lord, he's the Lord. Revival is breaking out. I mean, everywhere you look, I mean, he just, it's it. He runs up on top of the hill, tells Ahab, you go play, I'm going to pray. 
He begins to pray, cry out, cloud the size of a man's hand, and it rains. Drought broken. Thousands of people in his own mind saying, we're going to follow God no matter what. No matter what it takes, we're going to follow God. The Spirit of God is so strong on him, even though Ahab's in a chariot with a head start, he runs down Ahab's chariot under the power of the Spirit and beats him to Jezreel. When he gets home that night, he thinks it's done. Nation saved. Revival's come. Fire's fallen. Rain has come. Hours later, Jezebel's personal guard is at his door. In 24 hours, you're dead. Depleted from his exertions, he breaks, panics, runs for his life. I think as I look around the country right now, I find a lot of great men and women of God wondering the same thing. What's it going to take? What's it going to take to change our nation? We've had the charismatic renewal. We had Pentecostal revival. We had, you know, latter rain. We've had all these different revivals. What's it going to take? Godly men and women are asking these questions all around the nation right now. And the worst thing in the world is to do everything you know to do and wake up and wonder if it made a difference whether you're a parent or a spouse or an employer or a pastor. And there are a lot of people in America thinking, what is it going to take to revive this nation? I mean, I know leaders that are, leaders that are responsible for getting hundreds and thousands of people to pray. What will it take? Now, let's talk about that. I'm going to talk to you about where I find a lot of people, what God's saying, and I want to talk specifically to you. So Elijah, he figured, man, i got to get alone with God. So he tells his servant, he says, you stay here. That's his servant at Beersheba. And the Bible said he went a day into the wilderness. And he found a broom tree. Now, he, he realized, I've got to get a hold of God. I've got to get a fresh word. I've got to get some fresh revelation. I've got to get some fresh strength. So he was doing it all right. Had to get away from people. Had to go out in the wilderness and he found a broom tree. Now, a broom tree is the most beautiful plant in the desert. Golden flowers, beautiful fragrance, in oases, around water. He got him a little green space. Just, I, if I can just get away, I'll get a fresh word, get a nap, get away from work. Doing all the right things to manage his stress. Doing all the right things, getting away. But as you've discovered yourself, when you finally sit down and stop medicating with busyness, how you really feel comes out. He sits down under his broom tree, and he says this, I'm no better than all my ancestors. Kill me dead. And falls asleep. Falls asleep. Lord looks down from heaven. He just realizes, man, he goes, i got to help my son. Now catch this for me. I find many people right now facing a level of warfare and a level of headwind that the normal ways of managing stress is just not enough. Just getting away doesn't work. Just getting a little vacation doesn't work. There's so much pressure right now, so much warfare right now, things that are normally easy in the natural, children we've never worried about having conflict in their life. And he falls asleep, 
His last word to God was, kill me, I don't care to wake up. God realizes this is serious. He, so he sends an angel down to make him dinner. Now, the Lord's going to a lot of trouble here. He sends an angel down, and he, make, and he gets his hot bread and a rock, and he gets his water. Now, we know Jesus is the bread of heaven. It's a beautiful picture. Water is a picture of the Holy Spirit and being refreshed. And Elijah is sound asleep, and all of a sudden, watch this, he touches Elijah, touches him. And he says, get up and eat. Now, what do we find here? The touch only gave him enough strength to eat. It didn't give him enough strength to finish his journey. There are times in the Christian life, really all the time for that matter, where the touch is not enough. The average Christian lives on the touch and never goes home and eats. Lives on the touch of that CD. Lives on the touch of that podcast. Lives on the touch of that book. Lives on the touch of that conference. Lives on the touch of that church service. And the fact of it is, the touch we receive in places like this gives us the strength we need to go home and eat, to eat that word, to eat that presence. It equips us. So he gets up and he eats. Now here's the amazing thing. An angel from heaven has just made him a meal. And he just falls back to sleep. Now you think about this. Here is an angel with the bread and water. It isn't enough. The angel comes back, wakes him up again, touches him and says this, the journey is too much for you. Eat a second time. Six months ago, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Jim, the journey's too much for you. Double up in tongues, double up in the word, double up in my presence. He said, I said, why, Lord? He said this. He said, desperate circumstances demand a different diet. And all around, there's such a level of warfare. There's such a level of pressure. There's such a level of attack because of what we're facing in the world and what we're facing in our nation. And so many critical things are all coming together. that I've discovered in my own life, the normal measure of the presence and word in my life, which may be more than most or more than some, has not been enough. That I just can't live on the touch. I just can't live on the afterglow of preaching. I've been a Christian, I don't even know, 53 years now. I'm saved at eight years old. I've been preaching 43 years. And I find wherever I go in the body of Christ that there is pressure and warfare pressing the people of God. And God's answer for that, now watch this, is double up. Eat more. Praise more. Worship touch is not going to be enough. Many of you are under tremendous pressure right now. Some, some of you would look back and say, this year I've had pressure at a new level. Warfare has stirred around you. So Elijah gets up, and here's what the Bible says. When he was willing to eat a second time, he went in the strength of that meal 40 days. Now, 40 days, 40 years means that gave him the strength to go through his wilderness for 40 days. Interesting. He was on the way to Horeb, which was the mountain of God, another name for Mount Sinai. It was only an eight-day journey, but he made it in 40 because God was dealing with him and God was teaching him. 
Um, two years ago, when I spoke this word here about two years ago, I think you remember when I, I talked about the American church that we were heading for a time in the wilderness when we were going to begin to lose our sense of political and social power as a church. How many of you know that's right where we are? And we feel as a church in America that we've somehow, the playing field's changed. We've lost our voice. We're not listened to. Darkness is comes so fast. I don't know about you, but our country has changed for the worst so fast. It's astonishing. But I'll tell you something. If we've been shoved out in the wilderness some, how many of you know God doesn't do bad in the wilderness? Doesn't do bad, does he? Now watch this. So he gets to Mount Horeb. So when he came to Mount Horeb, he went to a cave. In the Hebrew, and you look at the better commentators, the cave. And it's believed that the prophets of that day knew the very place where Moses had met God decades and decades, hundreds of years before. You remember the story when the children of Israel had come out of the wilderness and they were trying to go to the promised land. But they kept backsliding and building golden calves and falling into sin. And Moses finally said, listen, if I don't have more of your presence, more of your glory, I can't do this. I can't make it happen. So God said, okay, get near me, stand on a rock, and see that hole and see in that cave down there. He said, yeah, I see that hole, God says. You're going to survive my glory. I'm going to have to put you in that crack. I'm going to have to put you in that hole and put my hand over you. You can't see my glory and live. So God's glory begins to pour out. He cracks his hand, and just a little bit of that glory floods down on Moses as he's leaving and forever it transf basically transfigures him in some ways. For the rest of his life, every time he comes in the presence of God, he glows and has to wear a veil. Now, Elijah gets up there in his old cave. Why are you here? Well, everyone's left you. I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me. I've done, I'm just done, God says. Come out of here. I have something for you. Now, watch this. Winds come so strong, it just tears rock off the mountain. Earthquake power comes. Fire comes. Why does God win any of those? Here's a still small voice. He comes out. He covers his face because he realizes the glory is out there. God says, Elijah, why are you here? He said, I'm here because I failed. They've torn down your altars. They're worshiping false gods. There's no hope. He said, Elijah, by the way, you're not the only one. A little depressed. There's 7,000, so there's 7,000 in one of you, but let me give you a plan. You see, Elijah is one of the greatest men that ever lived. I mean, you still hear another him in the book of Revelation, never really died, took off in a chariot. He said, Elijah, you're going to go back, but you're going to do it differently. You're going to find a young politician named Haziel. You're going to find a young army colonel named Jehu. And you're going to find a young businessman named Elisha. And you or one of the other prophets is going to anoint them, but Elisha is going to replace you. And you're going to impart your anointing and who you are to the next generation. And they're going to finish what you started. And of course, we know the rest of the story. Young Jehu became king. He wiped out 
the whole line of Ahab and Jezebel. And that nation lasted about another 145 years. Where are we in America? I'll tell you this, we've come to a very critical presidential election. Make no mistake about it. This election is as critical as the one with Reagan and Teddy Kennedy. It is critical. And I'm convinced, based on what the Lord showed me, that we're coming into a massive time of evangelism in this country. That as we influence every sector of society, this is not the end of America. It's not. I don't buy that. There are millions of people praying and loving God here. Now, what is it going to take for you and I to play our part in this? What's it going to take? This amazing harvest coming to Europe. I mean, the Muslim world coming to Europe. You look at this terrorism and they found one passport. Isn't that interesting? Trust me, ISIS may be murderous and barbaric, but they're not stupid. Their end game is not just to kill a few Europeans. It's to cause Europeans to reject those Muslims from coming into Europe and creating even a worse Reich. Let's not lose sight of what God's after. But what's it going to take? And we, we range in age here. I, I imagine the average age in this room is maybe 60-something. Who knows? Are you 45 or, fit, or 46? Now, I'm trying to remember, Jim. I, I'm marching on it. So what's it going to take? I figure at 61, I'm, I've come down to the last quarter of my life. Now my mom is still witnessing, praying in tongues, prophesying at 84 with no sign of stopping. So I'm claiming those genes. Um, What's it going to take? When I was praying with Tom and Jim and June and some of the leaders, this dropped into my spirit. I want to take a little peek at 2 Kings 2, 1 through 18. Elijah realizes that it's time to pass his mantle down. And he's been discipling this young businessman. And even though he's younger than, any, than almost anyone in this room, I want to use his life. When I was sitting with Tom and Jim tonight, the Lord spoke this to me. Where, where are we? You know, I have the privilege of traveling the world. And I, I grew up, my, my mom was baptized in the Holy Spirit in 1966. My dad was the head of the deacon board in our, our Baptist church, and that's like being the Pope, as you know. And he stood up and said, there'll never be tongues as long as I'm head of the deacon board. She snuck out and got tongues without telling him. And um, so she prayed for him. And finally, one night, he said, God shook him like a leaf all night long, shook the Baptist out of him and tongues into him. Now, so I grew up with a, a tremendous legacy. Um, my family comes out of Quakers and Huguenots. My great-grandmother would dance under the power of the Holy Spirit, and angels would come to her. I mean, the men that discipled me and mentored me came out of the latter rain movement. And the old, so I have an amazing legacy. What is it going to take for our generation to go into the promised land? What's it going to take for those of us who really have walked in revival? Who really, have, I mean, I watched this power of the Holy Spirit drench my high school in 1971 in the Jesus movement. 
200 of us in Southern California would worship in the lunch, in the, in the lunch place. I, I've, I've lived through the real thing. What's it going to take? And this is, captures it. Let me read these verses to you. They've come to the Jordan River. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elijah had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they'd crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, son, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it'll be yours. Otherwise, it'll not. As they were walking along, talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of the garment, tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he struck the water, it divided to the right and the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elijah. They went to meet him and bowed to the ground. Look, they said, We, your servants, have 50 able men. Let him go down and look for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down on a mountain. No, Elisha replied, do not send them. But they persisted until he was too embarrassed to refuse. So he said, send them. And they sent 50 men who searched for three days but did not find him. When they returned to Elijah, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? Now here is a stunning thing. Your theme is crossing the Jordan River. And this is the strangest crossing of the Jordan River now, you understand, they're in the nation of Israel. Now, we know two and a half of the tribes were on the other side of the Jordan River. They were conquered repeatedly. And so now, the traditional boundaries of the Promised Land start after the Jordan. All of a sudden, he comes to the time of getting the double portion. But instead of going into the Promised Land, it feels like he's leaving the Promised Land. And many times when we come into a divine transition and God is getting ready to anoint us in a different way to enter the promised land, we have to leave what seemed like a promised land. And it's never easy. Because the deeper you've ever been in the promised land of what God used to do, the harder to go it is to go into the promised land of what he's getting ready to do. It's just never easy. So if you've lived in the fire of revival and seen miracles and watched God move and had extraordinary worship, and I mean, most everyone in this room has experienced those things. So here comes young Elijah, and he's thinking, like, where are we going? What's happening? Like, why are we leaving? He's leaving the promised land. And to him, he's had no idea what it meant. It's interesting, every time they go a little deeper, Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho. Elijah turns and says, stay, you don't have to go. That's for two reasons. One, it's voluntary, and there's always a cost. And so right before God brings us into the new promised land, there is typically a leaving of what is old and precious to us. 
They get to there to the river, and then the kids think, this is just crazy. Elijah slaps the Jordan River with his mantle. It parts. They watch. Then, for the first time, Elijah says, okay, now that I see you're really willing to follow God, now that I see that you're going to follow him, even if it means leaving your promised land. See, remember with Moses, God said, listen, I can't go with the children of Israel anymore, but I'm going to send an angel with you to go into the promised land. Moses said, no way. I'd rather have you and live in the wilderness than an angel in my promised land. God saw that. It touched his heart. He said, what can I do for you? Elisha says, dad, he had firstborn son. It was right of the double portion. He was his spiritual son. Even though he had 150 other prophets, he was training minimally in these prophetic schools. He goes, dad, when you die, I want a double portion of your spirit. Now, you think about that. Elijah? That was one of the most miraculous eras in the history of Israel. Moses and Elijah. Now, that was a miracle. The dead were raised. Fire fell from heaven. I mean, enemy armies dealt with. Food multiplied. I mean, astonished. you didn't see it again until Jesus came around. I want twice of that. He looks at me and says, okay. You're asking a really hard thing. That wasn't pride, that was reality. He said, but I'll tell you what. If you can see me when I'm taken, it's yours. Now, was that like a, a game show? No. That was God said, if you've really paid the cost and you've really gained spiritual sight, you're going to see that I'm in this. Now, the other 150 of them, 50 left, they've missed the whole thing. They've had the glory of Elijah. They're going to miss it all. He said, if you've got an eye to see what I'm doing, if you can see me in this moment of time, this anointing is yours. He goes, okay, he says, you know what to do. And all of a sudden, a flaming chariot from heaven comes down. And the kid sees it. And he goes, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. He's gone. And the old mantle comes down. Now you see, years later when Elisha was going to die, a young king with no real relationship with God yelled out, my father, my father, the chariots and horses of Israel. But it was a mantra. It was a slogan. There was no reality. It really brought him nothing. Got the mantle. Everyone is watching, but he's the only one who saw it. He's the only one who saw it. And he's holding that thing. And he, gets, he turns around to go back into the promised land. Turns around and goes back into the promised land. Gets to that Jordan River and he goes, okay, where is my dad's God? And so he looks up. We don't know if he yelled it or muttered it. And he slaps that, and it parts. Now catch this, because it's so very important. He crosses over, and 50 of the 150 prophets who'd been in that train go and fall on their knees. They go, well, we, we see you're anointed, but get, let us go find your master. They didn't see the fiery chariot. We really miss him. We really miss your master. Maybe he's on a mountain. Maybe he's at another conference. 
Maybe we can just find it. Let's go find your master. He goes, listen, don't do it. But it said, they made him feel so bad, he let him go. What's wrong with you? Don't you care about him? Don't you love what God used to do? It was so glorious. And it was so amazing. Don't you care about it? Don't you hold it holy like we do? They searched for three days. How many of you know three days? There's a lot of symbolism in the Bible. Jesus, three days in the tomb. Jonah, three days in the belly of the whale. Three and 40, pretty serious numbers. Three days. Trying to figure out where Elijah's gone, they didn't have eyes to see. What had happened? Didn't have eyes to see. I was, I was raised by giants, honestly. Mentored by extraordinary prophets who came out of the latter rain. You know, when you sat and heard people like Gary French and Laverne Cromsey, you don't get too impressed with teaching much later. You don't. But you know something? As good as the old promised land was, there's a double portion in the new one. There's a double portion in the new one. Worship's not like it used to be. I go to, I go to services with Thousands and thousands of people in churches sometimes I go. They got so many services. I mean, on a Sunday morning, we may get three old songs in. We used to worship an hour and 15, 20 minutes back in the old days. Worship, a bunch of prophecies. All that's wonderful. But I want to have eyes to see. I don't want to miss this. We are coming to the greatest harvest of our lifetime. Almost all of us here have been in the promised land. Like old Elijah and Elijah, we're walking out to get what we need and go back in. It's our moment. No one could have ever predicted what God is doing in the Muslim world. No one ever could have predicted the God that they'd come to Europe. Who would have thought Russia would rise back up? and play right into the hands of God. Nations are but pawns in the hand of God. They don't realize it. This is our moment. We are born for this. I feel privileged to be alive. Sorry about that, brother. I, I'll try to talk a little louder. I feel privileged to be alive. It'd be easy for me to look back and just compare all the time or feel like a dinosaur because I have memories. And when you were talking about the average person, we're ministers in their 20s, maybe 30s. But how many more years God gives me, and I'm, I guess maybe I've come to my last quarter, I want to cross the goal line. I want to cross the goal line. Not just for the sake of my seven children, and soon to be four grandchildren, and as many kids, I have probably a lot of grandchildren, but my spiritual kids around the world. You all have eaten them 
big giant pomegranates and they were grapes they found in the promised land. Lived off the fat of the land with revelation and sense of presence rarely seen in this day. But I'll tell you something. God's up to something. He's up to something. And most people, they have trouble seeing it. You know what the sad thing is? If you don't see it, you'll spend your time looking for what's gone. That's what they did. They, three days, they searched on mountains. I've got friends that's, that fell in love with the promised land at a point. They were more but they were more in love with the promised land than the person who promised it to them. They're more in love with the promised land than the person who promised it to them. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you. I thank you, Father, for the privilege of being alive today, the privilege of walking with amazing people. Lord, we, we stand here tonight privileged. We've eaten of the fat of the land. We've eaten the big grapes the spies brought back. We've tussled with giants in our families. We saw things and looked at things when you shook the earth. And here we are once again, your spirit's moving. And we don't want to miss what you're saying and doing. There's an immense harvest, and we need the mantle to cooperate with you. Thank you for these precious men and women. The majority of them, my age and older. And Lord, they've, they've walked among giants. Thank you for all their faithfulness, Lord. They didn't quit. Lord knows that counts for something. Lord, I pray now that our generation would help usher in the promised land of our children, of our grandchildren, of our great-grandchildren. And I thank you, Lord, that we've come to an epochal moment where what we're facing with the terrorism, as much as I appreciate the military, without the gospel power, it will not change. Only the power of the gospel can change a heart, Lord. So we want to cooperate with you in this hour. Father, we ask that you take our hearts, mold them, shape them. Lord, for years, the world always thought no Muslims could be saved. Now they prove wrong. And now many have kind of written off Europe, the post-Christian world. You've never written off Europe. Oh, no, no, no. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege now of going out of one land prepared for even a greater promised land. Thank you for all you've taught us and all you've invested in us and all you've committed to so privileged that we're here. All of us have lost friends, lost loved ones, seen casualties. And here we stand. Help us to see what you're doing and not miss it. Help us to see the chariot. Help us to see the mantle. 
Lord, when Elisha walked back across the Jordan River, he healed the water problem at Jericho and it thrived. He dealt with the disrespect of your house at Bethel. And a miracle ministry was unleashed to change that nation. And we thank you for that privilege. We thank you and ask for a double portion of your spirit, a double portion of your power. We just ask for it in Jesus' name. Okay, let's be possible over a few people. I know you're familiar with the gift of prophecy. And